everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This is Untangling the Lines. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren. And my name is Dan. I'm a certified vet tech in the neurology department. Today, we are going to be talking about a case that we had recently. Uh, It was actually Danny's anesthesia case. And so I'll just let you get started. Yeah. So last week, we had a uh, a nice dachshund. Uh, His name was Henry. He was a six-year-old malneutered dachshund. Uh, He presented one evening through the emergency department. Uh, He came in in the the evening. He was obtunded. He was tetraparetic. Uh, For those of you who don't work in the neurology department, tetraparetic, tetra meaning all four, paretic meaning weak. Basically, he was was weak in all four limbs. Uh, He had no menace. He was blind. Um, and his third eyelids were, were pretty protruded. And this was not his first time at the hospital, correct? Correct, yeah. He had actually presented uh, a couple weeks prior uh, for cervical pain, for neck pain, uh, and for being weak and ataxic, so uh, kind of a drunken type walk. Yeah, I saw in his notes that the owners heard a yelp from another room. They found him like laterally recumbent in the other room and covered in his own feces and they didn't actually observe what happened. But I think that's, from what I understand, that's what prompted him to be brought to the ER. Right. So the initial visit from a couple of weeks ago, he was sent home with steroids and some pain medications. uh, And then he presented again uh, last week. Uh, You know, after the emergency doctors took him in, they placed him on uh, IV fluids, some hypertonic saline, some gastroprotectants, uh, and continued his steroids and his pain medications overnight until the neurologist could evaluate him in the morning. And what did she see? Uh, so the neurologist found, uh, you know, a lot of the same stuff that the emergency doctor had found. She did agree that he was obtundent. Yeah. He was tetraparetic. Uh, he did localize basically, uh, you know, to a issue somewhere in his brain, um, with the most likely causes being either, uh, multifocal brain disease, uh, or some kind of a, a lesion or a tumor. Interesting. So you ended up having to anesthetize this dog, Henry, for an MRI. Correct. Yeah. It was decided that, uh, you know, an MRI was the best route to go to try to figure out what was wrong. Uh, with this little guy. So an MRI was signed up and then we started to talk about what we're going to do for uh, an anesthetic protocol, what we're going to do for drugs, uh, as well as things that we need to be aware of in the case of, you know, a, a possible brain tumor dog. Obviously doing anesthesia on something that has potentially something neurological going on, uh, you know, in their brain uh, takes a, a different anesthetic mindset than, uh, you know, another, uh, a, a different kind of case. So what anesthesia protocol did you end up using? Yeah, so we ended up going with a couple different sedatives to get uh, a pre-med on board. We went with a butorphanol and a midazolam combo. Uh, We then induced him Mm -hmm. with propofol. uh, And after being intubated, he went straight on to ISO for an anesthetic gas. Sounds good. So what happened after you intubated? Yeah, so not long after we intubated we noticed that his heart rate was pretty low. Uh, It was in the 30s or 40s, and his blood pressure was pretty elevated. Uh, It was about 160, 170 on the Doppler. So at that point, we presumed he was potentially having a Cushing's reflex, uh, and then I came to get you. Yeah. Did you have a baseline heart rate? So what, what his normal would have been? Yeah, his initial uh, TPR 
his heart rate was about 88, 90. Uh, so it was markedly decreased from yeah, where so his normal was. Yeah, quite a was. change. Yeah. So I imagine at this point, some of you are wondering what is a Cushing's reflex. And this has a lot to do with intracranial pressure. So I'm just going to back up a little bit and talk about what is intracranial pressure. So if you think of the bony skull as containing three main components, that is the brain itself, blood, and the CSF, or cerebral spinal fluid. And that's essentially the fluid that bathes the brain and the spinal cord, essentially. So the skull is a fixed volume, and inside that volume are these three components. So if any one of these components increases in volume, so if the brain is swelling, or if you have vasodilation, you have blood pooling inside the brain, or you have an accumulation of that CSF fluid, which would be like a hydrocephalus, you are increasing the pressure of that fluids and that matter inside on the, the edges of the skull and essentially also on the brain itself. And when you have that high pressure scenario, that's called having high intracranial pressure. The reason that this is an important concept is because in order for the brain to receive oxygen, it needs sufficient blood flow, which we will call cerebral perfusion. And cerebral perfusion is determined by two main factors. Mostly it's determined by your mean arterial pressure, so your standard blood pressure that you take every day. And it has to overcome the intracranial pressure. And so that difference or that net is what we call the cerebral perfusion pressure, or CPP. So in the case of having an increased intracranial pressure, the brain will try to compensate for this drop in perfusion because the difference between your mean blood pressure and your intracranial pressure gets narrower, so that CPP goes down. And so as a result, the brain will actually cause an increase in blood pressure. And it does this by causing vasoconstriction, essentially increasing the amount of force exerted by the vessels on the blood, increasing the mean arterial pressure, and then essentially reestablishing that gradient between mean pressure and intracranial pressure. And that essentially reestablishes blood flow so that the brain doesn't end up losing oxygen. Now, the heart doesn't necessarily know that this is the brain's plan. And so the heart then sees this high blood pressure, which wasn't there moments ago, and the heart will then slow down its heart rate to try to kind of compensate. And that reflex is called a reflex bradycardia, or a reflexive slowing of the heart in response to high blood pressure. And that's also normal. So when you combine these things, whenever the brain has a moment of high intracranial pressure, you see what's called is the Cushing's reflex. And it's characterized by a low heart rate and a very high blood pressure. So Danny, when you saw that this dog's heart rate dropped from 80s or the 90s down to the mid 30s, you checked your blood pressure to make sure that that wasn't, it wasn't a primarily cardiac problem. And when you saw that the blood pressure was still really high, right. that was the signal to you that there was an issue and that the brain was having a struggle. Exactly. So super interesting case. So there's a certain patient population that tend to have uh, a higher risk for being 
at high intracranial pressure states. Uh, so brain tumors, which as it turns out, Henry the Dachshund had, uh, but also traumatic brain injury or TBIs. And sometimes when you have like a hit by car episode, the animal will come in and you'll see that it has nystagmus, meaning the eyes are moving left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, or sometimes up, down, up, down, up, down. <laughs> um, regardless, it's not normal. And then sometimes their pupils will be of different sizes. And sometimes you can just look at the animal, it's obtunded, and let's say there's serious skull fractures, jaw fractures, or uh, like an eyeballs popped out. So, you know, during the case of, of Henry, uh, I agree, you know, his blood pressure was elevated, his heart rate was decreased. Um, interestingly enough, his respiratory stuff was, was pretty pretty normal. You know, he, he was breathing relatively fine. Uh, his end tidal CO2 uh, was not markedly increased. So I guess I'm just curious, you know, can, can we see any respiratory changes with a Cushing's reflex? And that's a good point. It's actually something I forgot to mention. So there's technically a triad with the Cushing's reflex, and it's a drop in heart rate, an increase in blood pressure, and usually a drop in their ventilation or their their breathing. And so when you start breathing less, you'll see that the CO2 actually starts to go up as part of a mark of hypoventilation. So yeah, that can be an important part. Sometimes it can be so severe that this drop in respiratory rate actually causes them to have a respiratory arrest. And so in addition to trying to maintain your cerebral blood flow or your CPP, you now also have to start CPR because <laughs> your patient is peri-arrest. So it's definitely a, a serious issue. But that's interesting that Henry didn't have that. So is does the fact that Henry went under anesthesia, and by anesthesia I mean ISO, and then the Cushing's reflex started uh, started to happen, I guess. Can you see a Cushing's reflex even outside of an intubated, anesthetized patient? And what's the correlation between the, the Cushing's reflex and the fact that I had just intubated? So there's a couple points at which I would say you're probably more vulnerable for having a Cushing's reflex. Definitely isoflurane in general can cause a vasodilation. So it's going to actually increase the blood volume inside the brain. And if we think about our, what's actually called the Monroe-Kelly hypothesis, if you're getting academic. But if you think about the skull as containing the brain, the blood, and the CSF, by causing the vasodilation by the isoflurane, you can actually increase your blood volume. So if your brain's already swollen or you have a brain tumor, you can then further increase your intracranial pressures. And that's true of all of the inhalant anesthetics and something to be very careful about. Um, the other part is with intubation, sometimes if they're not adequately anesthetized, they can kind of cough or gag as you are inserting the endotracheal tube. And even that motion, uh, it's not really a motion, is it a motion? A reflex. A reflex, yeah. something of that nature, yeah. can actually cause a momentary increase in your intracranial pressure, like a little spike in your intracranial pressure. Right. And so with these guys, we try to keep them from vomiting, we try to keep them from gagging, we try to keep them from coughing, all for trying to spare the cerebral blood flow. And so uh, I wonder if that happened. I wasn't there for his intubation. Right. So what you're saying is that it's not surprising that uh, a dog presenting with these signs with what we later found out was actually going on ended up having this, you know, this episode uh, almost immediately after being intubated and being put on gas. You're, you're not surprised that this happened. 
essentially. I don't think we see it in every dog that has signs of intracranial pressure. How many cases do you think you do in a week? I mean, you know, maybe eight to 10 MRIs a week, you know, with something for for brains, yeah, for something that's going on intracranially. uh, And yet a dog who has, or cat, you know, an animal who has a Cushing's reflex is is a pretty low percentage of those. Yeah, I would agree. I probably see maybe one a month, one every two months, and we have a pretty high volume case load. So it's it's not super common, although when it happens, you really want to make sure you know what's happening, be able to recognize it and be able to intervene. Yeah. So going back to kind of our drug selection. So you used butorphanol, midazolam, propofol, and isoflurane. Right. And I would say for most cases that tends to work. Mm -hmm. But I do want to talk about why that was particularly a good protocol and possibly other drugs that you could have used um, just so we all kind of cover all of our bases. So generally speaking, we u- tend to use an opioid for uh, for premedication because you get good sedation with it. As long as that opioid does not make them nauseous, gag, and vomit, I think it's totally cool. So butorphanol is a great one because butorphanol has an anti-emetic or anti-nausal um, properties. properties. Perfect. Whereas a drug like morphine that's known to make them super nauseous and vomit everywhere, that would be a less ideal choice. But butorphanol, I think here was perfect. Midazolam, we know midazolam has good anti-seizure properties, which is great. However, should that dog later on, let's say on recovering from anesthesia later, should that dog have a delayed recovery, we might have been tempted to try to reverse all of his drugs, which would include flumazenil, which would reverse your midazolam. However, that let's say we then uncovered these seizures because he has intracranial disease, then you have a a big of a soup because you have midazolam, the reversal agent, and now Valium that's all trying to compete for the same receptor. That can make it a little more complicated. Mm -hmm. So midazolam, I think, was fine in our case, and in the end it actually worked out for us. So this dog had actually received, uh, like I said, GI protectants as well as Serenia the night before. Uh, I think that probably ended up just working in our favor. Uh, you know, the fact that those things were given to, to try to decrease uh, as much uh, GI symptoms or regurg or anything like that as possible. Absolutely. That and then you could use dexmedetomidine. I think the big concern with dexmedetomidine is while it does initially increase your blood pressure, it does so at the expense of cardiac output and general blood flow. So it's a little bit controversial, although it is known to decrease intracranial pressure, possibly because there's just, in general, less blood making it to the brain. Hmm. But it is possible. It is an option you could use. Right. I don't think our dog, Henry, needed it because he was already so flat out in the cage before we even premedicated him mm-hmm. that we didn't need a super potent... Premedication. Right. Yeah, drug selection. Right. It wasn't yeah. really necessary. Right. So... Then talking about induction agents, so mm-hmm. you use propofol. Correct. And I would say either propofol or alfaxone are probably the gold standard drugs for dogs with intracranial disease. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why. So in addition to just being, we're just super comfortable with it, right? We use propofol on, what would you say, 85? Not, uh, high 90s. <laughs> yeah, percent of our cases. Yeah. So we're super used to it, which is a, a, a good note in terms of, anesthetist comfort and right. how well the animal will perform. However, propofol is also known to decrease intracranial pressure. 
because it actually decreases the general firing of the brain. It kind of quiets the brain. And so before we we're kind of talking about how the blood flow to the brain in a very global sense. But if you actually think about what determines where the blood goes in your brain, it's not essentially it's not a, a blanket that kind of covers over right. the brain. It goes to the focal areas of of whatever part of the brain is processing at that moment. So usually, let's say you have a thought, and so you have a couple neurons who are firing together. That firing of those neurons is essentially going through some level of cellular metabolism. And as part of that, they're producing CO2 and lactate. And that lactate is an acid. And that acid then causes that little capillary right next to that little neuron to vasodilate and allows the blood flow to go to that active neuron. So you don't usually have kind of a, a mass flow of blood through the brain all the time. It's kind of you get these little regional spikes. And that's how they do like PET scans and all mm -hmm. these functional MRIs because they're looking to see where's the blood going at that moment as they like show different pictures to you right. or however they do it. I've right. never seen that. I don't understand it in concept. So when you give propofol, it's actually quieting all of those neurons. And because of that, you're decreasing your intracranial pressure by just decreasing the amount of blood that the brain is asking for. And so that kind of works out in our favor. Now, in a different light, you have ketamine. And ketamine tends to cause uh, what I call disco brain. So <laughs> even though it's an, an anesthetic and the animals tend to go to sleep usually with it, right. what you have instead is a dissociative anesthetic where the thalamus, which is usually the connector that allows all of your major neural sig signals to kind of go forth from the spinal cord to the brain and from one side to the other side and all these different nuclei from one side to the other side, that thalamus shuts off. So no one's able to communicate to each other. But as a result, the brain is still firing. And it's not just a little firing, it's like super firing. And so because you have all these regional areas of bada bing, bada boom, you end up having a lot of spikes in blood flow to all these little neurons who are having a, a little bit of a party. And so as a result, you have a general increase in intracranial pressure. So I think for the technicians that are listening who you know may be anesthetizing possible animals with uh, some kind of brain disease, you know, if they're trying to think about in the future what they should be looking at for pre-meds and how to induce, uh, it sounds like staying away from ketamine is a smart idea. It sounds like inducing with propofol is a smart idea. Uh, and then, you know, you have a couple different options as far as what you can go with as far as pre-meds, you know, whether mm -hmm. it be uh, butorphanol or midazolam or a, a dexmed type deal. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for recapitulating everything. Right. But then when it comes to maintenance, now you have to think about typically you will use an inhalant anesthetic like isoflurane. Although instead of allowing only those focal active neurons to request a blood flow, you're essentially causing that blanket vasodilation and blanket increase in blood flow everywhere to the brain. So that is overall going to increase your blood volume inside that skull and that's gonna increase your intracranial pressure. So as an as a alternative, you can do what's called an TIVA, which stands for total intravenous anesthesia. Right. So instead of maintaining with your gas, you're gonna be maintaining with propofol or with alfaxalone, right. usually given as a CRI in mm -hmm. a syringe pump of sorts. So. Which, spoiler alert, is what we ended up having to do. Absolutely. Right. So 
uh, why don't you tell, so let's go back to Henry. Yep. And so we saw that the heart rate was really low. Mm-hmm. His blood pressure was really high. Mm-hmm. He was still breathing, which mm-hmm. is good. Mm-hmm. He was intubated. Mm-hmm. He was currently on isoflurane. Mm-hmm. And we had, a, we had a moment. So what did we end up doing? The next step that we ended up doing was actually giving mannitol, uh, which, you know, in my experience in the neurology department, mannitol is a pretty commonly used, uh, I guess, medication whenever we have possible brain disease or uh, a possible brain herniation. Um, maybe you can explain why. Sure. So mannitol works as an osmotic agent in the sense that it has a very high concentration of its molecules, more so than the concentration of molecules in your plasma or in your brain tissue itself. And so when you infuse mannitol, it actually helps to pull extra fluid because it's so concentrated. It pulls fluid out of the brain into the blood and by that it kind of decreases brain swelling and hopefully decreasing the intracranial pressure and therefore reestablishing cerebral blood flow. So that effect can kick in in about one and a half to five minutes, and then it can last as long as six hours. So after giving mannitol to Henry, we turned off the gas Mm -hmm. and we essentially waited to see what the mannitol was going to do. And did we end up giving him steroids at that time? Did we give him a dose of DEX-SP? We did not. I believe he was on oral steroids the night before. I do believe he got a dose of Cybedrol um, at that time or, or near after. I don't know. At some point. But regardless, we, I think we did start to see an effect of the mannitol pretty quickly. And so while the blood pressure was initially 170, 180 mm-hmm. on the Doppler, yeah. we started to see it kind of creep down to 150, 140, 110. Yeah. And the heart rate stayed pretty low, I think in the mid 30s to right. 40s. And once the blood pressure was a little bit more normalized, then we gave a dose of atropine to bring up the heart rate. Right. Because we just didn't want another reason for him to go into an arrest situation. Right. And that would also help to maintain cardiac output, blood flow, pressure, the whole nine. So then. Yeah, at that point, we you know, kind of decided that he was manageable uh, and that we still wanted to proceed with the MRI to, to get an answer to find mm-hmm. out what was going on. So, mm-hmm. you know, his, his ISO was off. Uh, now the question was, you know, how do we keep him anesthetized during an MRI? And, you know, for those of you who've had an MRI, it's, you know, this really loud banging machine that takes 45 minutes to an hour. So, you know, we, we have to find out some way to keep them anesthetized while they're in there. Uh, and then we came to the conclusion that we're going to do basically an Alfax CRI while he's in the MRI. So essentially we went to Tiva right. because we decided keeping the isoflurane on for him was probably a bad idea. Right. And the unfortunate part, the logistical concerns about this is that none of our syringe pumps right. are MRI safe. Right, yeah. So, and that's something we always have to keep in mind. And so we ended up just using multiple extension sets right. and we were able to keep the syringe pump outside of what, what's called the five gauss line essentially that's the line at which the magnet is so strong that it would pull the syringe pump right into yeah. the into the opening right. yeah it worked i mean we, you know we do have a couple machines in the mri that are not mri compatible and as long as you keep them far away enough from the magnet there yeah. typically is not an issue exactly so so then because we still needed to find an answer both for right. henry for his owners and for us we decided to go ahead because while this was not an ideal situation, we essentially had gotten him to a much 
more manageable condition. Mm -hmm. And so we moved in. So at that point, you know, we decided to move into the MRI. Uh, once we got him in there, we still got him, you know, obviously on oxygen. Uh, and we ended up hooking him up to his Alfax CRI. He was on IV, IV fluids. Uh, and, you know, what's super important with these dogs, with these, you know, possible intracranial dogs is basically watching their end title. Uh, so and by that you mean the end title CO2, yes, your capnograph. Our capnograph, right. And that's why having capnography... Uh, you know, is super important in these dogs to make sure that it stays normal. So ideally 35 to 35, 40? 40, yeah, yeah, is what's always been kind of drilled into me. Unfortunately, we don't have a MRI-compatible ventilator. So basically, I turned into a, you know, a human ventilator, uh, and I had to stay, you know, in the MRI and, and basically breathe for him. And I'm constantly watching the, the capnograph, making sure that, you know, that, that number, that end title CO2 is, is staying at a, an appropriate level yeah and the co2 to keep in mind is a good is a super important monitoring tool for these guys it serves as our estimate of what our arterial co2 is and that's probably the most important value but without running an arterial blood gas the co2 on our capnograph is going to be the most probably the most important value that we'll be looking at so basically i'm just i'm giving as many breaths as i have to per minute you know, and whether that's 16, 20, 24, 30, you know, you're you're giving whatever amount of breaths you have to to keep that end title where it needs to be. Exactly. Okay. And that's probably probably one of the most important things. And the reason for that is because CO2 has a very similar action to essentially isoflurane, where if you allow the CO2 to creep up, then you're going to be causing a kind of a widespread vasodilation in the brain, increasing your intracranial pressure even further. So if you cause, if you breathe too aggressively because you're way too gung-ho and you're very worried about Henry mm -hmm. and you brought his CO2 down to, let's say, 20, right. you'll actually be causing so much vasoconstriction. Remember earlier how I was said, how I said that it's the little neurons who are producing CO2 who then produce lactate. It's mm -hmm. an acid, causes vasodilation, the little sparks. If you cause... If you drop the global CO2 too much, you end up causing vasoconstriction to the whole brain, and you can actually decrease blood flow to the brain and decrease oxygen delivery. Okay. And so then you can have essentially have like an ischemic insult. So you don't want to get too crazy. Right. So 20 is, is not appropriate. Right. But also allowing the CO2 to get too high, right. 50s, 60s, is also equally inappropriate. Mm. So really your goal is to keep it exactly at 35 so that you're not making his problem any worse, but you're also right. not you know starving the brain of oxygen Leading to more issues yeah exactly so it's it's very important so in the end you need to make sure you're monitoring your blood pressure to make right. sure i mean in case you have a cushing's reflex you can see that hypertension you need to be monitoring your capnograph your end tile co2 to make sure that he's ventilating appropriately and at right. the right level and you also should be monitoring his heart rate as a minimum to again look for that drop in heart rate right if with a cushing's reflex yeah and so that just requires a lot more intensive monitoring, I would right. say, than your standard easy spay right. or whichever. Right. Not that they don't also don't deserve you know, the best of care. So what does this all mean? Why do we care so much about intracranial pressure, the Cushing's reflex, and everything? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're taking all these steps to properly uh, manage the patient, I guess, at the end of the day, because, you know, if you don't properly manage them, uh, there is the risk of the brain essentially taking the path of, of least resistance, 
uh, in you know essentially trying to leave uh, go through the the frame and magnum which you know I guess in the neurology departments we say is, is going out the back door so uh, sad. yeah and that's you know essentially irreversible and that is you know that's what you're trying to avoid this whole time um, is an irreversible uh, action you know if you can if you can manage this to the best of your ability uh, you know to for the best for the patient yeah unfortunately sometimes the brain herniating is going to happen and even despite our best efforts but knowing when you have a patient that has high intracranial pressure or has a significant risk like a traumatic brain injury or some or some sort the there are certain steps that you really should be taking to try to minimize that risk for that patient because essentially once the brain herniates we're we're done we're over yeah and so that can be really sad so on I mean, to wrap up the story, uh, on Henry's MRI, they essentially found a very large brain tumor in mm. the center of his brain, yeah. and it was actually causing a backup of the CSF fluid. So there's usually a couple pockets of CSF inside the interior of the brain, we call it the ventricles, and that had become so dilated because the CSF was not able to escape and stay in balance, and so he essentially had a, like a hydrocephalus secondary to his brain tumor. Yeah. And so that's why poor Henry had such a fast decline right. from just a couple of weeks ago, right when the owner first brought him in for generalized weakness, yeah. all the way up to this centrally blind, obtunded. Yeah, and the fact that him. you know Henry was already on steroids, he he was already on pain medications, you know, short of I believe radiation. You know, he was getting as much of the you know what we call medical management as much as possible. So even before we knew what his actual problem was, right? And now that we know what his problem is, uh, you know, we're still left with limited options as far as how to properly treat him. All right, so let's summarize what we talked about today. So. We are suspicious that our pets have increased intracranial pressure when they have neurological changes that are consistent with an intracranial disease. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's nystagmus, that can be Mm -hmm. seizures, that Mm -hmm. can be just a obtunded or really sedate uh, mentation. Also, it can be common with a traumatic brain injury, Mm -hmm. especially if it was just hit by a car recently. You can see neck pain. Neck pain, yeah. And so, Generally speaking, we are looking for or we're nervous to see a Cushing's reflex where we're going to expect to see a low heart rate with a very high blood pressure. And sometimes you'll also see that they will stop breathing. And that should be your trigger that the brain may be about to herniate or is already herniated. herniated. And that's really a sad situation. Yeah. So the way that we avoid or manage these cases is we want to make sure we don't make the increased intracranial pressure any worse. So first and foremost, we want to make sure we avoid any vomiting, gagging, or coughing, especially with after giving pre-medication drugs or during intubation. So make sure that your patient is sufficiently anesthetized before you try to intubate out of the risk of them gagging and coughing against your tube, and then that can be the, you know, the last straw and then pops out. And a lot of this can come down to your thought process before you even start to, you know, proceed with a procedure that can com- come down to your, your GI medication choices, your anti-emetics, uh, even your pre-med choices to make sure that you're, you're staying away from drugs that could theoretically make them nauseous. Absolutely. And then when it also comes to drug selection for your anesthesia, you probably want to avoid your dissociatives like ketamine and telazole. 
and you might want to consider not using a gas anesthetic to keep them anesthetized and maybe reach for your propofol or alfaxalin CRIs as a more ideal choice. But regardless, if you use Teva or use gas, then you should be, be diligent about keeping your CO2 at the normal range of 35 to 40 millimeters of mercury. And if that means that you have to sit there and breathe for the patient the entire time, well, that is what you do. Right. All right. Well, we want to thank you all for tuning into the podcast today. This is still pretty new for us, but we are working to put together a website for you to leave us your questions and comments. We would also love to hear what topics you would like discussed. So if you found this episode helpful, please share our podcast with your clinic and your teammates and give us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to you soon. Bye.